0: Good evening, one and all. Great to be with you on this Saturday night. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our service team will get one of those to you. We are in Genesis chapter 9, but we have to back up a few verses. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, picking up in verse 21. As we look at our message tonight, the new world of Noah. We looked at the days of Noah and the incredible wickedness that was going on. We looked at the flood of Noah as God judged the world and destroyed all animal life except that which got on the ark. And all human life except for eight individuals, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, all got on the boat. It took him 100 years to build this incredible mammoth barge that floated around for basically 370 days, just because they had a 360-day year back then, and then it was 10 days longer than that, so it was 370 days. Imagine being in this boat with all these animals. For a solid year, it lands on Mount Ararat, and the Lord says, okay, go outside the boat. The new world of Noah, the New Testament tells us that it's like a baptism took place, the baptism of Noah, that all of the old sin was dead and buried. And Peter uses this illustration to look at our life that we also, as we believed in Christ and we're baptized in the waters of baptism, not with the removal of the filth of the flesh, Peter says. You're not, it, it's not baptismal regeneration. It's, that it's the pledge of a good conscience towards God. But imagine you're a family and you're the only ones on planet Earth to start a whole new world and population. I have a childlike faith when it comes to God's Word and the revelation of God's Word and the evidence of a catastrophic global flood. So I don't want to spend any time talking about that or defending that. The Lord declared what he's done and then we're gonna see in this passage all the new dimensions because the world that Noah got out of the boat and went on to land And the world that he left behind a year before are two different worlds. The atmosphere is different. The weather is different. The climate is different. The diet is different. There's a new law. And then there's a new drama, but it's really just the same old drama. You know what didn't die in the flood? Man's sinful nature because eight people walked onto the boat with it. And then they came off the boat. Isn't that a drag? If you're a Christian, is there any bigger drag than struggling with your own sinful inclinations? It's just, it would be so cool the moment you receive Jesus, just to have that that Star Trek moment. And the Lord says, beam me up, Scotty. You know, just boom. I'm in heaven. But then the struggles and the trials to grow in the sanctification process. Well, that's what Noah's going through. After the flood, Noah's gonna have another 350 years because he's gonna to live to be 950 years old. For heaven's sakes, 70 to 80s, plenty. I don't need it no more. Can you imagine almost living a thousand years in this old carcass? It's like, oh, come, Lord Jesus. Well, hopefully you made your way to Genesis chapter 8. Let's pray before we jump into God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It is nourishment for our souls. Lord, it is a sharp two-edged sword to, dis- to divide soul and spirit, to divide the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Lord, nothing before you is hidden, but everything is open and naked and laid bare. And your word brings this revelation. So I pray for each one of our hearts, that are desperate for the illumination of what you would speak to us. Lord, we didn't come here tonight to play church. We didn't come here tonight to just uh, waste some time. Lord, we're we're here because we wanna hear from you. We just pray that your spirit would do that work. I pray for your precious people that have come, that you would anoint them, that you would open all of our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word. I pray as those give in the offering, Lord, that you would just bless them abundantly as they continue to help us in this work going forward. So, Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness. And pray that you would bless us now as we lean into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see the new beginning, and we ended there, but it's been a couple of weeks. And so we see in verse 21 of chapter 8, before we start chapter 9, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. There's a a soothing aroma, a smell, because Noah offered sacrifices after he got off of the boat. He offered these sacrifices, these burnt offerings to the Lord, and there, in the King James, it's these sweet savor sacrifices that we see throughout the book of Leviticus. But it's this picture that here's sinful man. And between a holy God and a sinful man, there has to be bridged this gap between those two. And the only thing that can bridge those gap is the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all those sacrifices were looking forward to a day when Jesus would offer his body as our sacrifice. But until then, the animals were sacrificed. Their blood was shed. They were, su- they were the substitute for man's sin. But it says, and the, it, so- it was a sm- soothing smell. In the temple throughout the years, years after this, there was uh, the burning of meat. Think barbecue, right? Does anything smell better than barbecue? I'm soothed every time I smell a barbecue. Doesn't matter what's on the griddle unless you put one of those veggie things on there, right? That doesn't work. You need the the meat and the fat and all the juices and all the... and you just smell it and you just go, ah, that's so awesome. And then there's also bread or grain offerings. So think of baked bread. Those two combinations of barbecue and they they do a lot for my soul. But those are illustrations or pictures as the smell is rising to heaven that the Lord is smelling that to be soothed and receive the sacrifice so that he can cover our sins. As Noah comes off of the boat, the Lord declares that even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. The Lord says nothing's changed with the fallen sinful man. You see, there's two schools of thought about humanity, right? The progressive left or the secularist or the atheist believes that you evolved and the way that you act is based on your genetic structure. The way you act. If you're you're bad, it's because that's genetically what you are. It believes that your genetic structure and your environment has affected these two things. You're basically born good and then your environment can make that bad. That's a secular worldview of humans. The Christian worldview, as David said, as he was praying to the Lord in Psalm 51, after a terrible season of sin in his life, he says, I was conceived in iniquity, Lord. This is the doctrine of original sin. Adam and Eve sinned And then genetically, like every single child that's been born, it's a genetic condition of sin. That every single one of us came into this world with a sinful fallen nature. And so here, everybody got on the boat, he wipes out the sinful world, and these guys are going to come off the boat toting their old sinful nature, just like they went onto the boat. And yet the Lord says, but I'm never going to bring judgment with a flood again. That was a one, well, it was a one-off, one-and-done situation. There's new weather, because here in verse 22, it says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, shall not cease. He now describes the seasons, we would say the four seasons, around the earth, that there's very, it's topographically, they call it the troposphere around the earth where the weather and the wind and the rain and everything takes place and the evaporation of the ocean that takes moisture over the mountains and then it condenses in cold weather and it snows and then it melts into the river in the spring and runs back. And Solomon made this uh, observation about the hydrology system of the Lord. He's like, hey, the the rain keeps going, the snow keeps going in the mountains, it keeps filling up the ocean, but the ocean never gets any fuller. So, you know, that's kind of a basic old primitive thought. Like, How come it doesn't get too full? All the rivers are going. That's because then it evaporates again (laughs) and takes off and goes back. These things were not so before the flood. The flood changed everything about the, how do we find a fully developed mastodon in Siberia encased with tropical fruit in its belly in the Siberian ice. They dig it up, they find it, here's this mastodon, it's got, it's got tropical fruit. Do you know that the atmosphere at that time, they found ferns. You see a fern, you're walking through the forest, this fern's like maybe four foot tall. They find ferns that are 100 feet tall on the fossil record. 100 feet tall. The atmosphere was so radically different. So now we have around, we have deserts and we have cold areas. But then it seemed to be, it was much more consistent with a... Uh, a constant temperature around planet earth so things changed then there's a new generation obviously you got to start over verse 1 of chapter 9 so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth after you just went through a flood I hear people today even saying should you have kids in a world like now right no they don't have the choice back then of Birth control, if they're going to be sexually intimate, obviously, as husbands and wives, they just have to be celibate. But it's time to start over. There's a couple of ways to take over the world, right? Politically, or just have a lot of kids. So we should take on both tracks. Be fruitful and multiply. But there's a new generation that has to raise up, and this new generation is going to know nothing. Just think about it. Only eight people know what the world was like before. Nobody else... and they talked, I mean, Noah's got 350 years to talk about the kids and the grandkids and the great, great. I mean, how many great, greats do you have in 350 years? I don't even know. But he's telling them about, well, you know, before the flood, before the flood. And telling them all about it. And the oral tradition kept going forward. There's a new zoology. There's a new relationship between man and beast because it wasn't like this before the flood, it appears. Verse two, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. There's a new fear relationship that when, you know, you show up, The deer run away, you show up, animals run away. There's a new fear relationship between the animal kingdom and the human kingdom, which before the flood, it did not seem to be that way. There's a new diet in verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For the first time, the Lord says, hey, you can eat meat. Anything that's living, and you butcher, and you can eat, but you gotta drain out the blood because there's a symbol. Life is in the blood, so you don't eat. Uh, you know, if if you're familiar with kosher food, you have to bleed an animal properly. This came into the Judeo-Christian ethic. If you've ever been hunting, I, you know, kill an elk, I kill a deer, and then you cut the throat and you drain the blood. Hopefully. You know, in a way that it's downhill, and you're getting as much blood to drain out of it as possible. Now, some people make a big deal. Say you have a steak, and it's you get some blood on your plate, and you because you like it medium rare. That's residual blood. That's not it, that meat has been properly drained. Uh, just so that you know, but the life is in the blood. So you're supposed to drain the blood before you eat the meat. But before then, it doesn't appear. It appears the entire world's culture was vegetarian in nature because the plant life and everything must have been more abundant in protein content and all that they needed but now with a new dynamic all these things are implemented after the flood nothing is talked about before the flood so most bible teachers believe that there's a whole different dynamic afterwards than there was before there's a new law In verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds a man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. We had no law like this, even though we know that Cain killed Abel. But after this, going forward, there's going to be a uh, cultural, a government control of capital punishment. If you murder somebody, your life is gonna be taken. This is implemented in the book of Genesis. It's never revoked. There are people that oh, you know, wanna make a big deal about capital punishment. The, the Bible uh, declares that if it, there's self-defense involved, then that's, that's not murder. When the Bible says, you shall not murder, it's talking about you going after somebody specifically to kill them. It's not you shall not kill. Soldiers throughout history have killed enemy soldiers, but they have no personal beef with them. There are countries in are in conflict. There's, there's killing that takes place. That's why you can have killing without it being obviously it's you don't want that. But it is not the sin that murder is. So when somebody murders somebody, then their life is going to be taken. We live in a generation within the church because people want to be viewed as more merciful, more compassionate than God himself. They say we shouldn't do these things. We have a justice system that's imperfect. Well, we have a fallen nature. The fallen nature with eight people came off the boat. Everything's imperfect from day one. There's only eight people in the whole culture. What's your neighborhood like? Is it going to pot? Well, I don't know. There's only eight of us. We haven't had any drive-by shootings. You know, the boys haven't been gangbanging down the street with their friends because there is no one else. So this new law implements a perspective from a Judeo-biblical perspective. Paul the Apostle, even in the New Testament, when he is being charged with something, he said, if I have done a crime deserving of death, I don't protest, but I have not. He realized that capital punishment is a part of every culture in the past, but as you diminish that out of, quote, some bleeding heart compassion, what happens is murderers now are more emboldened to even be, what are you going to do to me? right there's there's no consequences and even if they do get the death penalty they've got 25 years of appeals right the injustice of taking a person's life because the lord amplifies why this is so important i made you guys in my image and when somebody takes your life they're messing with me because you are created in the image of god so if you take somebody else's life once again this is not about manslaughter accidents those types of things, there's provision in that as we, you know, later in the law, you would flee to what's called a city of refuge. You'd have to hightail it though, because if the family found out you killed their brother, before you get to the city of refuge, you got to run for us, run. Don't stop, run. And I'm running and running. You got to run, okay? And then you stayed in that city, tell the death of the high priest, then you were set free to go back to your home. But that could be 50 years, right? That was their form. Do you know that the Jewish people with God's law and wisdom lived for 400 years with no prisons, no police systems? How do you have a culture that lives with no prisons? Well, you have very clear law. These are the consequences. If you do these things, this is what's going to happen. We're not putting you in prison. We're not going to do this or that. I mean, there's very specific things. Do you know if you broke into somebody's house at night and you defended yourself because there's a burglar in the house and you killed them at night, you're not culpable because somebody that breaks into your house at night, the assumption is there is somebody in the house and they may seem want to do you harm. But if you kill them during the daylight because they think, oh, they're all out to work and we're going to rob your house, these are the di- distinguishing marks. Even today on the books, almost all of our, our laws in America were taken from Jewish law and then developed or morphed or tweaked to fit our culture. Did you know that? So anyway, this is the first law about murder or capital punishment that um, is implemented throughout the scriptures. There's a new population. Obviously, you've got to have a whole bunch of people to populate the earth. Verse 7, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Have lots of kids. The new covenant, the Lord made a covenant with Adam and Eve. The Lord makes a covenant with Noah He's going to make a covenant with Abraham. He's going to make a covenant with Jacob. He's going to make a covenant with Isaac. He's going to make a covenant with uh, the Jewish people through Moses. God is a covenant-making God. A contract is not a covenant because a covenant has a spiritual, eternal, supernatural aspect to it. That's why you use a different word than contract is a covenant, it's a spiritual agreement between you and God. And look at what God promises in this covenant with not only man, not only Noah and his three boys and all their wives, but with the animal world and the the earth itself. He declares in verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Now seven times in these verses I'm going to read, he uses the word covenant over and over and over again. I'm going to establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. What's the promise? What's the covenant? There's going to be a sign of the covenant. So the promise of the covenant is I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to have a global flood. Do we have localized floods around the world every single year? Yes. Do people die in those floods? Yes. Is there a global flood that's all the way around the world? No. In a moment, you'll see the sign of the covenant. In verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and and the earth it shall be when i bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and i will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. From Noah and Mrs. Noah and his three boys and their wives, the entire, every single one of us in this room, we are related. We're all cousins, right? We're getting ready to have a big family reunion for all of kind of my age group and all of the kids and all of the grandkids at the end of next month in Idaho where I'm from and uh, all the invitations that are going to go out. It's going to be a huge hoorah, right? It's all your little nieces and nephews running all over the place. But in a broader sense, you have to realize, and to me, this is the most ridiculous thing when churches get on the bandwagon of this whole social justice thing. Hey, man, we're all related, right? We're all related. Some of us have more melanin. Some of us has less melanin. That's the only difference different parts of the world, but we all came from this family off the boat. (laughs) Truly, your family just got off the boat, (laughs) right? (laughs) They got off the boat and they spread all over the earth and wherever you're from. And uh, that dynamic that God says, you know, I want to give you, and this is so cool to me that seven times he said, I have this promise with you. It's with mankind, it's with the animals, it's with the earth that, Every time there's a rainstorm, every time there's a cloud, and then I bring my rainbow. Now, first of all, you grow up, most of us in this room absolutely take rainbows for granted. Do you know this is a really cool supernatural thing that this, once again, points to prior to the flood, would there have ever been a rainbow? No. Because it says, and the Lord did not cause it to rain upon the earth. A mist went up from the ground and it watered everything. Before the flood, there was like this automatic sprinkler system. So cool, right? Just, California water system can't shut you down. Your grass is green all summer long. It's amazing, right? So now, though, because of the rain and the different uh, troposphere of the earth, there's this this rainbow. And every now and then you get one of those really cool double rainbows. Now, you know how a rainbow, it, it looks it looks like a bow and arrow, right? So a bow and arrow goes like this. So the picture is God's bow of judgment came to the earth and he poured out the flood. But now the bow is not going to be pointed towards the earth anymore. It's pointed towards heaven. So The promise in this beautiful, the spectrum that, you know, happens through the water droplets and this beautiful array and the the color. And this is why, to me, it's such a tragedy. I just, seven times the Lord said, this is going to be my covenant with you guys, this really cool rainbow. He wasn't thinking of June. Right? We got to rescue the rainbow. I think it's so weird that certain movements grab a hold of these really cool biblical things and then it's all about the rainbow. Let's not digress. Let's move on. Okay. But we also have a new drama. And this new drama is life's got to start, right? You go through this horrendous building project, 100 years. At the age of 500, the Lord told Noah, hey, build me a boat because it's going to rain. What's rain? Well, I'll show you. He builds the boat. Takes him 600 years to build the boat. He goes inside, comes out. he's bobbing around on the water for 370 days. And then he comes out and don't you know, just imagine the stress, right? Imagine the anxiety, imagine the the pressure. And and Noah was so faithful, he was so responsible. Do you know what it must have been like to get up every day, six days a week? Because you see for them, closer to the original creation, they had that built-in six-day week. And then a day of rest, because the Lord had given that to them. He's going to work from sunup to sundown, six days a week with his boys. They do it for 100 years. The stress of it and, and the anim- oh, the storm, I hope this thing floats. I mean, think about it. I hope this thing floats. They have no engineering plans. no doubt. I mean, the Lord told them the dimensions to build it, but still, you never build a boat. And he comes out, and whew, we made it. It says in verse 20, And Noah began to be a farmer. Ha, that sounds peaceful. And he planted a the vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered naked in his tent. I'm sure if you have a past like me, I have seen people drunk and naked, passed out in various ways, shapes, and forms. We will say no more about it. So what happens with over-intoxication, correct? Over-drinking. You know, the Bible doesn't forbid uh, drinking wine or a a drink, it forbids from beginning to end drunkenness when you are no longer in control of your senses. So uh, there are some people that they don't have that balance so they just say, hey, I I can't drink because I can't have, if I have one, I have a dozen, right? And I just get all jacked up so I can't do that. So you've chosen not to. And in this room, we have some people that have some addiction issues, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whatever, and you choose not to. And then we have other believers here that you can have a glass of wine, you can have a beer, you can have a martini with a friend, one or two, done, never never goes farther than that. And we have to be mindful when you're around people that are other brothers and sisters, if you not to stumble them. That's what Paul the Apostle says. Basically, there's three rules to Christian freedom. Let me give them to you, okay? Number one, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the bondage of anything. As soon as I become addicted, I'm no longer free. The Christian life has all this list of, here's my liberties, here's all the liabilities that I can get myself in trouble with, right? <laughs> I can have the liberty, yeah, but when I become a slave or I'm addicted, okay, okay. I can no longer do that. I'm no longer free. Number two is that not only will I not have those things be in control of me, but I also um, have to look and say, hey, is this going to edify me? All things are lawful for me, but not all things build me up. Will this build me up? Will Will I be encouraged through this? Or will I be torn down? Thirdly, Will I stumble somebody? If I'm going to stumble, so Paul said, if I'm going to stumble a brother or sister, he was using the context of eating meat because there was meat sacrificed to idols at the local temple and they sold it really cheap down at Costco, you know, of the day because it was, hey, you know, we got to slaughter all those pagan, you know, animals at the pagan temple. We sell it really cheap down here. And if you bought that and you brought it home for the barbecue and you had the neighbors come over and they're Christians, they're like, where'd you get that meat? Did you get it at the market that was sacrificed to the idol? Paul says, when you show up at a barbecue like that, don't ask any questions. <laughs> Very wise. Paul's got all this great advice. He's like, it's kind of like, don't ask, don't tell situations with the meat. And he said, but if they tell you, ah, it was out for it, I thought, then, then you forgo. Paul said, I'll never eat meat again. I'll never have another glass of wine again. I'll never do anything if it's going to stumble my brother or sister that Jesus gave his life for them. So how dare I stumble them with my freedom? So Noah doesn't get the three rules to Christian freedom. (laughs) He becomes a farmer. He drinks too much wine. He gets drunk. He takes all his clothes off. But he's in his tent. You know, at least he's in in his tent. An awkward moment. And his boy comes in. Verse 22, and Ham the father of Canaan. Now this is an important story because the Canaanites, thousands years later, thousand years later, They're going to go in and destroy. The Israelites are going to go destroy all the Canaanites in the land of Canaan, right? Well, this is their ancestor. This is how he behaved. This is how he acted. This is what he did. And he's going to get a curse from this, from his dad, Noah. The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father. Now, when the scriptures say this, now, there's a big theological nut here to crack for those who see it this way. When you look upon somebody's nakedness, this terminology in the scriptures means you did something sexual with them. You didn't just see them. You did something sexual with them if you looked upon their nakedness. So, when it says, he saw the nakedness of his father, and then he went and told his brothers. You know, laughing. Hey, dad's in the tent. He's hammered. He's drunk, naked. You guys look at me like you've never, where'd you guys come from? You've never had these kind of, I'm sorry, this is just, this is where I came from. It's like, yeah, sounds like, this story, you're like, oh, I'm so shocked by this story. It sounds like Friday night to me. All right. Verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah woke from his wine, hungover, just think about it, his head's pounding. He's, he's covered up, but it's like, it's like he's, uh, he doesn't have his jammies on. It's not like the same kind of clothes when he went to normally. And it says, Noah woke from his wine, and what does it say? And knew what his younger son had done to him. What do you mean, what he had done to him? All he did is tell his brothers and maybe they snickered about it or laughed about it. Or you know, it's I mean kinda of embarrassing. Dad's drunk. they I mean they're grown men. It's not like it's not like your eight year olds in here. It's what? Uh Here's my youngest, he's 350 years old. <laughs> right, their ages are like that. It's like so nuts. I mean, Noah at this time is, is 600 years old. So, but when it says this, and then his response seems like there's more. So, you have two options. Option one, it's a very surfacey thing, but it was humiliating for Noah. And he told the brothers, and he basically just aired out his dad's dirty laundry or naked body. Secondly, it could be more egregious or more heinous or perverted that he saw his dad's nakedness and he molested him. He did something to him while he was drunk. Then his dad wakes up and whether his body feels different or something, he's like, man, something happened to me when I was was passed out. And he gets up and he's upset and he's going to curse him. I have a friend, you know I came from the rodeo world, you guys know that, I was a bull rider and all my friends were rodeo cowboys and I have a I had a friend, a good friend named, uh, we called him Thack, Thack, a really good bronc rider. And we had shared Jesus with him and after I got saved and we had brought him to church a couple of times, but Thack, a few years after we had taken him to church, was at a party, passed out just like this, just passed out drunk. And uh, a guy came in there and uh, he he kind of woke up out of his stupor, his drunk stupor, and this guy was trying to, uh, have sex with him, a man was. Well, you'd have to know Thack or I- any of the rednecks that I ran with. Thack jumped up, you know, knocked him across the room, ran out to his truck, grabbed his three fifty-seven, and walked right back in and shot him in the head and killed him. Thack was, got five years in the Utah State Prison for uh, manslaughter because of his rage and passion in that moment and what happened. But it was a very, I mean, intense... Uh, thing that took place. In this story, what Noah does is he doesn't shoot a bullet. He shoots a curse. And the curse is so far-reaching, it reaches through the hundreds of years to the land of Canaan and what those people became like. And he is the first in a group of descendants that went down the road far from God and began to live that out in their life and in their culture, so much so to the degree and to the point that the Lord finally said, go in and wipe them out because the evil that they have, the the literal evil, and if you want to know how evil their culture was when the Lord said wipe them all out, you just read Leviticus chapter 18 and 19. It says that they were into bestiality, having sex with animals. They were in, I mean, just like on and on. Like the list is just like, bah, seriously intense. Incest, like crazy, just unbelievable things. So here comes the curse. And that's what's going to happen. In verse 25, then he said, this is Noah. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the, the Lord, the God of Shem, And may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. May he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. This curse to Canaan and then the blessing to Shem, which is Shem is... The, uh, the forefather of all the Israelites, all the Jews. Okay, so we're going to go from Shem ultimately to Nahor to Abraham through this line of Shem. And Jesus is going to come as the Savior from the line of Shem. And then Japheth is going to enlarge his tent. It's going to be a very uh, large tent of people and most believe. And when we get to the table of nations, we won't do it next Saturday night because we have the movie with Nikki Willis and Plandemic coming and uh, uh, Judy Mikevitz and Pastor Rob will be here next Saturday. But the next week, when we do the table of nations in chapter uh, 10, it's the most ancient, accurate, historical, that's why it's called the table of nations, about these people went to this region of the earth. These people went to this region of the earth. And basically, it's the old school genetics of how Noah and the three boys and their wives came out of the ar- uh, ark and then begin to s- disperse around the world. Jephthah is thought to be the European peoples. And he's going to be coming and hanging out in the tent with Shem. Or this a relationship that's long range, even to this day, this long range relationship that we have In an American sense, with the uh, nation of Israel and all of those different things. And we see the interaction that this is so long ago, but then we see through the history of what's taking place. And we'll look more at that when we see the table of nations and chapter 10 of Genesis. But here's a dad, and you discover in the scriptures that dads can bring a blessing to their children or a curse. And obviously something very egregious happened as far as Noah's concerned with what, you know, Canaan did to him. Whether it was just to hum- humiliate him or in a patriarchal society, you have to, you know, I mean, you need, it's very important to honor your elders. And he didn't do that. Or it's, it's more than that in some kind of sexual sense. But on the other hand, his blessing is just as powerful, the blessing of the Lord that was going to be on Abraham when we get to chapter 12 that this blessing is going to beginning to roll I don't know about you but I really want to be in relationship with God enjoying his blessing and it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that you and I have received every heavenly blessing in the spiritual places in Christ Jesus God has poured out through his son Jesus on you and me, anybody that believes in Jesus, this incredible abundance of heavenly blessings. You know, I have here tonight love that has filled my soul. Like I feel I'm full of God's love. He just put it inside of me. I'm not like, I'm Mr. Love Man. I mean, he's put his love inside of me that I'm enjoying his love. I have his peace, I have his joy. You know, I don't care if you're 19 years old or you're 90, you want these three things in your life. You want love, you want peace, and you want joy, right? So most people, what do we do in America? We self-medicate. Got to get some love, (laughs) got to get some joy, (laughs) got to get some peace. It's usually bottled in some form (laughs) at the store or the pharmacy. (laughs) You got to go get these things. I got a six-pack of love and joy (laughs) here. But you and I know that uh, whatever artificial man-made thing that you and I have ever sought after, we always come up empty, right? It's just like you 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 pour it all in, like, oh, somehow I have to drown the, the anxiety in my soul, and I'm, I'm anxious, I'm a, a, afraid, I'm... I'm angry, I I can't forgive, all these different dynamics. And the Lord said, in Jesus, I'm just going to pour out all of this blessing on you. And it is going to be so life-changing and so transformative. Who doesn't want to live in that blessing? That's why when somebody tells another person about Jesus' love, that's why it's called good news. Because it's bringing that blessing to your life, that incredible blessing. But isn't it strange that the whole world that wants to reject Jesus, they want to reject good news. Whoever wants to reject good news? You know, the bad news is if you live a life of sin and you reject God, you're going to hell forever. That's some bad news, right? A preacher has to tell the bad news so that the look good news looks good. If you t- I have all these old crusty friends of mine. Rick, don't be telling me about your Jesus. You know, I'm just going to go to hell with all our friends and just bust it wide open. We're going to just have a big party down there. It's like, I said, I've read about hell in the scripture. There's no party going on down there. It is scary. You in so much trouble. You in trouble forever. Right? As a matter of fact, when the rich man in the story in Luke chapter 16 Uh, Many uh, Bible subtitles over a a paragraph will say, oh, this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, That's inaccurate. It is not a parable. If it is a parable, it's the only parable Jesus ever told in all four of the Gospels that used a man's name specifically. This is a true story, I'm convinced, of Lazarus and a rich man. And the rich man wanted nothing to do with God, but he had... You know, he fared sumptuously. I mean, he whined and dined and then he died. And he was in Hades, separated from God. And he could see Lazarus, who was blessed and comforted, and he was cursed. And he's still giving orders. I mean, he's down. There. hell doesn't change people's temperament. Did you know that? He shouts across this big gulf, this cat chasm that's between them. Hey, Father Abraham, send send Lazarus. He used to beg for bread at my door. Send him to put his finger in the water and come cool my tongue. I want somebody to serve me here in hell. Abraham said, son, in in your day you had your good things. Now you don't. You made your choice. And Lazarus, you know, he had a rough life. But now he's comforted. He's blessed. He's, He's here in my presence. And there's a big, you know, this big gulf between you and me. There's no going back, dude. There's no second chances. You're over there. You made your decision. You made your bed. You're going to lie in it forever. And Lazarus made his decision. He trusted God. And then the rich man says something fascinating. He says, well, then send Lazarus back from the dead and tell my five brothers not to come here. Do you realize he had love in his heart and became an evangelist while he's in hell that Lazarus would rise from the dead and go home and knock on the door. Hey, Joey, your bro, he's down in hell. He's just seriously tormented. He said not to come. (laughs) Joey, he knows you're coming. Joey, change your ways. Believe in the Lord. He says, send him to all five of my brothers. Now, does this blow your mind that people go into eternity? Because what do you think about eternity? Do you think that people aren't going to know each other? Abraham knew the rich man. The rich man knew Lazarus. You don't even have to wear name tags, and you know everybody. It's a different realm. But isn't this crazy? Did he want his five? Hey, tell my five brothers to come here and be with me. No, 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 no. He says, you go tell my brothers. Don't you come here. Don't you come here. Whoever I can tell, tell, don't you come here. And Abraham told him, he said, hey, they have Moses. They have the word of God. They have church. They've heard about God, they've heard the scriptures, they've they've been to synagogue, that's it. He said, if they do not believe the scriptures, if they do not believe the word of God in the synagogue, even if somebody rises from the dead to go back and tell them, they're not going to believe. You go, well, I don't know, if your brother came back from the dead, would you believe? Well, we have another story, who's another Lazarus, and he rose from the dead, right? Jesus told him after four days, Lazarus, come forth. They rolled the stone away. And his sisters even told him, Martha said, Lord, he's been dead four days. He stinketh, King James. You know, it's like, don't, don't, don't have him come out. Don't have him come out. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And so Lazarus comes hopping out. He's got his great, you know, he's all mummied up. He comes hopping out. Hey, get those old clothes off of him. But do you know what the next chapter says? The religious leaders had previously wanted to kill Jesus, but now they wanted to kill Lazarus too since he rose from the dead because he was, <laughs> he was evidence exhibit A of resurrection power. <laughs> so what do we got to do? We got to go kill the Savior and we got to kill the one he raised from the dead after four days. What do you do with that kind of unbelief? Didn't matter that he rose from the dead. You would have thought they would have fallen on their face and said, "Woo! Jesus is Lord. Right? In this story, the blessing and the curse goes down through the years to Noah's descendants. The blessing, oh, it's so good. And the curse, it's so heavy. But you and I are here tonight, and if you're in Jesus, you have all of the spiritual blessings coming to your life from the heavenly places of the goodness of God. And it's going to affect your life all all throughout eternity. It's gonna affect your family because they're rubbing up next to you in Jesus and you're blessing them and you're touching their life and the blessing just overflows. But it is something that people can reject. It's not my job to convince you. Here you are tonight. Somebody drug you to church and promised you a burger afterwards. I don't know why you're here. Right? I don't, who comes to church on Saturday night? I have no idea. right? You know, Most people are out drunk and naked in their living room. I don't know where they're at. <laughs> what are they doing on a Saturday night, right? They're, they're hugging that toilet, that thing they would never touch with a 10-foot pole. Oh, it's my friend. It's my friend. What are you, what are you doing here? I just want you to know how much Jesus loves you. I really do. I mean, in all sincerity, Jesus loves you. He wants to bless you with his forgiveness and his grace. He asks you to trust in him, repent of your sins, and he's going to blow your mind about how he's going to bless your life. Truly, he's going to blow your mind. But only you can choose to do that. No mom and dad can force you. No friend, no husband or wife can for- You alone have to surrender to G- you. After surrender, they can't do it for you. You're not going to stand before the Lord. You know, my wife, my wife, she's super godly, Lord. I was just hoping to get in. You know, on her, ch-. no, 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 it's not where. No, you and me, bro. It's I, I, your, your wife's already in here enjoying. She's in there eating Shekinah berries. I mean, she's she's loving life. It's, it's you and me. You got to make that decision. And nobody can force you. In Gordon Hansen's famous portrait, ancient for- portrait, used to be in the leaflet of so many Bibles. You ever seen it? It's the picture of Jesus knocking on the door, right? The old, but you, it's just in your leaflet, in your Bible, and you see it. It's very, very powerful. And when he did that portrait originally, all his friends are artists, right? He's an artist. He's a Christian. Jesus knocking on the door. And he, and he shows the portrait to his friends. He's like, hey, I finished. And they all start laughing at him. They're artists. They start, you know, the artists joke, like, look, Cord, you, you forgot the door handle. <laughs> Duh. And he smiled and said, I didn't forget the door handle. Don't you get it? When Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, the door handle's on the inside, not the outside. The door handle of your heart for your eternity is on the inside. And only you have access to that handle to say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. Be my Savior. Do your work in me. I want to walk with you. I've I've tried my own life. It's a dead end street. It's just like so empty. And I really want your genuine love, joy, and peace, and forgiveness. Enjoying the blessing of God in your life and dispensing it throughout your life to anybody that sees your life or will hear from you will be the greatest joy of your life of taking a few people along with you to heaven forever. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that your grace would do a special work in each one of us. We are totally dependent upon your goodness and your finished work. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross and shedding your blood and taking our place and receiving the judgment and the wrath of God, for my sin, for our sins. And I just pray that for those who are here tonight, that you're knocking on the door of their hearts. I pray that you would just, they would open up. And they would, only they can make that decision. Lord, I pray that your spirit would draw them into your love. You tell us that it is your goodness that leads us to repentance. So Lord, in your goodness, draw them now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's stand together and sing this closing song, brothers and sisters.